Welcome to the latest message in our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. This message is the second message in our Advent Christmas series called God With Us, and today we are going to dive into the deep end of the pool as we explore the claim that the historical Jesus was God incarnate. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham as we turn our attention to Colossians chapter 1 for a message titled, Who is this King of Glory? Larry King uh, passed away in 2021 at the age of 144 years old. He had a long and distinguished career, and it was marked by some interviews that honestly went down as some of the most watched uh, television interviews in all of American history. As he approached the end of his retirement, he did something unique. He actually uh, kind of turned the tables, and instead of interviewing key people as he uh, approached his retirement, he invited them to come on the show, and they switched seats. They got to interview him. And so in one of those final interviews where guests were actually interviewing him, uh, interestingly, uh, before he was president, Donald Trump was one of the final guests, and he came on the show, and he's interviewing Larry King, and he asks uh, a question to Larry King. And he says, he said, if you could interview anyone in the world, who would it be? And that's a fascinating question to ask Larry King because he's literally just about interviewed every who's who, every politician or athlete or historical figure or entertainer. And, and so who in the world has he not interviewed that he did not want to interview? But that was the question. And what was even more fascinating than the question, though, to Larry King was his answer. Larry King paused briefly and he answered. I would interview Jesus. I would interview Jesus and I would ask him if he truly was virgin born because if he were, that would define all of history for me. In other words, he said if the Christmas story is true, then it would literally change the course of human history uh, and change the course of my life as well. Well, I don't think it ever changed his life, but it did in fact change the course of human history. And so last week we kicked off a new series uh, for Christmas called God With Us. And, and I want to ask the question, was he really? Was it really God incarnate in the manger? Is that just something we tell ourselves? Is that something that's got passed down tradition? Or in fact, is that the claims of the Bible that in fact God was with us in the incarnation on that first Christmas? So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1 uh, for a message titled, Who is this King of Glory? Now, if you're a connoisseur of uh, Christian music, you would know the title of the message also shares a title with a popular Christian song from a few years ago by Third Day. And listen to the lyrics from verses 1 and 2 of that song. Who is this King of angels, O blessed Prince of Peace, revealing things of heaven and all its mysteries? My spirit's ever longing for his grace in which to stand. Who is this King of glory, Son of God and Son of Man? Who is this king of glory with strength and majesty and wisdom beyond measure, the gracious king of kings, the Lord of earth and heaven, the creator of all things? Who is this king of glory? He's everything to me. In that song, there are some powerful claims about who Jesus was. King of angels, prince of peace, king of glory, king of kings, Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things, which begs another question, if Jesus is creator of all things, then how did he himself 
take on flesh? How do we reconcile those truths? And that's a fair question. And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And I would argue this. Some theologians have said when it comes to the deity of Christ and the incarnation, Colossians chapter 1 is the single most important chapter in the Bible. I don't know if I could say that, but I would say it's certainly in my top three for sure. And so what we're going to find out of the fact is the message of Christmas really true? Are the claims of Christmas really true? Was God really with us? Because listen, if it in fact is not what the Bible claims it is, we're all wasting our time. Let's just sleep in on Sunday mornings and enjoy a leisurely breakfast at Awful House every single week. Amen? I know some of you eat there, and I said what I said, all right? So what in fact does the Bible claim about the baby in the manger on that first Christmas? Colossians chapter 1 Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It says we're not teaching through a book. Uh, let me just kind of set a little context what's going on here in Colossians, uh, the book as a whole, and particularly in uh, chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church here to correct some doctrinal errors that had crept into uh, the life of the early church. And one of those false teachings was a system of teaching, a false teaching known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism had all kinds of claims that were false in nature, but uh, one of the primary ones is that uh, they taught that all physical matter was evil. And so as a result of that, the overflow of that false teaching was that Jesus could not have been God in the flesh because he was comprised of physical matter. And Gnosticism taught that all physical matter is evil. So the natural conclusion from their perspective is that he could not be God in the flesh because therefore God would be evil because all matter is evil. And so Paul instructs us clearly about who Jesus was and why he came to earth on the first Christmas uh, in this passage. And so I want to ask the question this morning, who is this king of glory. Not who do you think he is, not who does culture say he is at this time of the year, but what does the Bible actually claim about the person and work of the Christ of Christmas? I want you to see three statements here in the first four verses regarding that question, who is the king of glory? The first answer is this, Jesus is God in the flesh. Paul wastes no time and Right off the bat, he describes Jesus uh, as the image of the invisible God. Now, when we read that with the cultural connotation that we think of images, uh, we think of images something else in our culture. We think of images something that's not a true essence or true representation. We think of image as something we're trying to create artificially to project. And so when we think of the idea of image, well, that's what we're thinking of. It's not the real thing. It's the projection that you're trying to get people to buy into. And so that's why we talk about image management. It's not who you really are. It's how you want other people to see us. So when we see that word image, that's what we're thinking of. But the reality is here, this is one of those places where digging in the original language actually is helpful. Sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, sometimes you ever someone teach, and here's the Greek, and here's the Hebrew, and here's this, and here's all this thing. Sometimes pastors just want to show off that they went to seminary, all right? 
But this is one of those times where it's actually helpful to dig into the original language. The word image in our English translation in the original Greek is the word icon. Not spelled the same, but pronounced the same as what we think is icon. And icon implies representation or manifestation. When the term was employed, it meant that the symbol was actually more than just a symbol. It was the manifestation of the real thing. The symbol brought with it the actual presence of the object. That's what the word means. The symbol was not just a symbol. It brought with it the actual presence of the object. One commentator said it's the visible expression. He says, icon means the very substance or essential embodiment of something or someone. So what verse 15 literally means is that Jesus is the image or very substance of God. The point is that Christ, in Christ, in the incarnation, the invisible became visible in that first Christmas. Listen to just a few additional verses to support this conclusion. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 Jesus described as the radiance of God's glory, listen to this, and the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 describes him as the image or icon of God, the very essence of God is what that means in the original language. Philippians 2, 6, which was our passage last week, being in the form, which means same essence, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. One theologian says the personal revelation of the living God, Christ is the projection of God on the canvas of our humanity and the embodiment of the divine in the world of men. Over the years, you can imagine of serving as a pastor, on occasion, a time or 200, I've had someone ask me the question somewhere in this kind of a general idea, even though it's phrased differently, what exactly is God like? What is God really like? And I've had people ask me like, why was God so grumpy on the left side of the Bible, but he seems like he's happy on the right side of the Bible, right? How do we reconcile that? What is God really like? Here's the answer to that question. He's just like Jesus. If God were a man, what would you expect him to be and to do? I would expect him to be sinless, and Jesus was. The Bible says he was in all points tempted like us, yet he was without sin. If God were a man, I would expect him to speak the most profound truths and statements of wisdom. And Jesus did so much so that millions of people are reorienting their lives around his teachings still today. If God were a man, I would expect him to do miracles. Jesus did. He would have made uh, prophesied and predicted the future. Jesus did. I would expect God to be kind and compassionate and look out for the least of these. Jesus did. But I would also expect God to be holy and experience righteous anger over sin and injustice. Jesus did. Any way you look at it, if God were to come into the world, he would come out as Jesus Christ because Jesus is the exact reproduction of the essence and image of God. Who is this king of glory? He is God in the flesh. Verse 15. The Bible also goes on to say here in Colossians 1, not only is he God in the flesh, secondly, Jesus is supreme in nature. How many of you grew up in a time or maybe even a culture where it was common for someone to stop by your house unannounced? Anybody remember those days? That happened to us this week, and uh, Tasha sent me a text. She said, hey, someone's knocking at the door. And I said, what'd you do? I didn't answer it. Did they 
yell through the thing? Did they, what, did, what did they do? They left a sticker and said, we have a package. I said, it was the mailman. Answer the door, right? <laughs> What'd you do? I called the police. One time when our oldest was little, she called the police on someone, said, someone's outside. I'm calling the police. I'm, I'm fearful. Uh, well, I don't know who this person is. They're walking around our yard. And so she was freaked out. I'm going to call the police. They're here. They're going to break in. It was the lawn chemical guy in uniform in his truck. So you're just like your mother. That's what I told her, right? But anymore, it's so uncommon that if someone knocks on my door, there's a good chance that they would offer me a copy of the Watchtower, right? And so one of the things that Jehovah's Witness believe, or actually do not believe, they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe that first statement in verse 15, that Jesus was in fact God uh, in the flesh. And here's why they don't believe that. Here's the argument they would make and a misunderstanding of what's being taught that we'll teach through. Uh, here's the question, how can Jesus uh, be equal in nature without equal authority. So in other words, how could he be God in the flesh, equal in nature or essence, but yet be subservient or submissive to God in function? And they can't reconcile those truths, so they just make the conclusion wrongly that Jesus could not have been uh, God in the flesh. And so the answer to that question is this. Submission deals with activity, not with essence. Did you know this? Hypothetically, my children obey me. Hypothetically, in theory, right? Let me ask you a question. If my children obey me or are submissive to my authority, does that mean logically that therefore they're less than human? No, because one deals with activity and one deals with essence. And so, by the way, the belief that Jesus could not have been God in nature because he was submissive in function. It's not new with, with Jehovah's Witness. That was a doctrinal error that crept into the church, a group called the Arians. They had a false teaching, same as what Jehovah's Witness believed today, and it got so much traction and foothold in the church that they actually had to form a doctrinal council in 325, the Council of Nicaea, where they concluded that, hey, despite all this false teaching going around, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in essence. They had to actually convene a church council to decide that heresy. So here's the question. If that was decided hundreds of years ago, then why are still people teaching this falsehood that Jesus was not God in the flesh? Well, part of it is a misrepresentation of verse 15 right here in our text. Now, let me just give you a warning. For the next several minutes, uh, I'm going to be in the deep end of the pool, okay? So if you've got your big boy pants on, would you just raise your hand up real high this morning? If your hand's not raised, I'm just assuming you're not wearing pants. Stay seated, all right? In verse 15, look at it with me. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. We are that word image, it's icon, it's exact essence. We've already settled that issue of what that means. But the second half of verse 15 says he's the firstborn over all creation. So those who don't hold to the deity of Christ would look at the second half of that verse and they would look at that and say, see, it's the firstborn of all creation. Therefore, Jesus is a created being and therefore he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, then he could not be God himself. All right? So if you're listening, say amen. When you want to understand a difficult verse to understand, one of the most important things you should do is to compare scripture with scripture. Because if scripture is inspired, which means God breathed, 
that it's the very words of God, then what it cannot do is contradict itself. And so when we think about that, uh, when we look at those words, uh, the firstborn, uh, what you have to understand is this, that, that the word firstborn, it's the Greek word protokos, and it can mean one of two concepts. Number one, it could be a statement of chronology. So when I give you uh, one of my kids' names, and I would say, hey, this is my secondborn, uh, when I say this is my firstborn of my oldest, you would say, that is a statement of chronology. He's talking about the order in which his kids were born. But other times in Scripture, it is not a chronological statement. Matter of fact, it's describing uh, heir or possessor of something else. And so how do we know that, that what exactly he's describing here? Well, listen, when I compare Scripture with Scripture, if this is a statement about chronology that Jesus was born at a point in time and didn't exist before that, therefore he's not eternal, uh, when it says he's the firstborn of creation, here's the problem. If I take that as a statement of chronology, nowhere in the Bible does it describe Jesus as the firstborn in all of creation or the secondborn or the 500th born. And so what we, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we cannot say, hey, that word, protocols, can mean one of two things, and I think he's describing a statement of chronology at a point in time. Why? Because then, guess what? Then the Bible contradicts itself because Jesus is never described as the firstborn of creation. And so what else does it mean? If it's not pointing to a statement of time, what else in the Scripture is it pointing to? It's pointing to his supremacy. This is not a statement of chronology where that word is using to point to the order in which Jesus was born because he was never claimed to be the firstborn in all of creation. In fact, it's saying he's the firstborn, he's the most supreme who's ever existed. It's describing he's the heir and possessor of all the supremacy of heaven and earth is what it's describing there. John Piper describing verse 16 says it's clearly teaching not that Christ was a part of creation, but that rather he's over creation. Listen to John 1.3, without him was not anything made that was made. And so if someone comes and on your door, and they've been trained, what they're going to say is they're going to say, hey, Jesus is a created being. or say, no, he's not. And they say, yes, yes, actually he is. Because look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7, describing the birth of Jesus. It describes him as the firstborn of Mary. And it's the same Greek word, protokos. And in fact, that's true. What they all don't know is that those words can mean different things. And so when it describes him as the firstborn of Mary, that is a statement of chronology. But here in this passage, it doesn't say he's the firstborn of Mary. It says he's the firstborn over creation. And I know that's not true because I've read the beginning of the Bible. And so what that has to be speaking to is not a chronological statement, but rather a declaration of his supremacy over all of creation. And so it says Jesus is God in the flesh, verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation, which means the heir or possessor. And by the way, the Bible they would have had understood, that was consistent with their idea of what the firstborn was. 
The firstborn in Old Testament, you read so many times, the firstborn was the heir or possessor of all the blessings of the birthright, right? Of all those things that they inherited as the firstborn. Why? Because they were supreme, the heir, the possessor. So yes, they were first in chronology, but what came along with it is they possessed things that the other children did not because they were supreme in that birth order. And so when he's describing this, he's saying, hey, Jesus Christ is supreme, Jesus Christ, verse 16, is God in the flesh, verse 15. And I know this is a lot of doctrinal, a lot of theological things, but, but here's what I want you to understand. that This is not some second-tier issue or some third-tier tertiary. Listen, this is a teaching that if you remove it, it's a first-tier teaching. If you remove away the deity of Christ uh, from the story of creation and the gospel, then guess what? You no longer have Orthodox Christianity. It's that important. This is not some third, tertiary, preferential kind of issue. This isn't in the realm of women wearing pants or makeup. I've already told you my theology on that. The barn needs painting. Paint the barn. Amen. Some of you will get that later. You know what this means? That if this doctrine is not true, the incarnation, that God was really with us in the flesh, then celebrating Christmas is literally an act of pagan worship. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples to compare this conclusion that this statement of the firstborn is not a statement about chronology, that it's a statement about importance or supreme or possessor of his supremacy. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, the Bible describes Israel as God's firstborn. Uh, that same idea. Now, we know from reading the Bible, there were lots of people groups that existed, lots of nations before Israel. So that's not a statement of chronology. What's that mean? That Israel was supreme in their relationship with God. Firstborn, supreme. Psalm 89, 27, a prophetic psalm about Jesus. We read this. I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Supremacy. Hebrews 1.6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, there's that word firstborn, he says, let all the angels worship him. What is he describing as the firstborn? He's supreme. He's worthy of even the worship of the angels. And so Jesus is God in the flesh, verse 15. Jesus is supreme over all creation, verses 15 and 16. And the third truth we see in this text is that Jesus is eternal in existence. And so the whole idea that Jesus was a created being, therefore he could not be God in the flesh, those who hold that false teaching, uh, listen, verse 16 blows that out of the water. Verse 17 and 18 reinforce what verse 16 uh, are teaching. Look at verse 16. What does it say about the eternal nature of Jesus? Verse 16, it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. If Jesus were not eternal, then guess what? The only things that could have been created by him are the things that were created after his birth. But it describes in heaven and on earth. What does that describe? Everything. The Bible says that God created the heavens, plural, and the earth, that everything, including the angels, the heavenly host, where all Jesus was present in the work of creation. 
John MacArthur in his commentary in Colossians says this. He said, like those who deny Christ's deity, those who reject him as creator give evidence of a mind darkened by sin and blinded by Satan. Here's what I've learned over the years about John MacArthur. People either love his theology or hate it, but here's what I appreciate. Oh, John John is a straight shooter, amen? He's saying the reason they reject him as creator because it speaks to his eternal divine nature. And guess what? That means when Jesus speaks that his words have moral authority over our lives. That when Jesus said, hey, you must be born again, that was not a suggestion to consider. But he says what he really means is what he said or else you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus was God in the flesh, verse 16. Jesus is supreme in nature, verse 15 and 16. Jesus is eternal, verse 16. You say, I'm not totally convinced. Listen up, I'm going to learn you something, all right? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says this. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir, firstborn, possessor, heir of all things, listen to this, through whom also he made the world. Out of the very mouth of Jesus, I had someone say, well, I don't think Jesus ever claimed to be any of those things. Out of the mouth of Jesus in John 17, 5, he says this, Oh, now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so that statement speaks to his supremacy when he says, I share in God's glory, and it speaks to his eternal nature when it says, before the world was. Now you say, hey, I'm still doubting. I'm not totally convinced. Keep reading. Look at verse 17 and 18. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme, there it is again, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. And so what he's describing there is, hey, he is God in the flesh. He is eternal. He is supreme. All those things are pointing to that over and over and over again. And if these things were not true, then listen, let's just, let's just quit wasting our time. Let's just quit focusing on Christ this Christmas and just get in the whole commercial thing and just make it all about accumulation, not about sacrifice. Let's just quit talking about pointing people to Jesus because if these things are not true, Christmas is just a cultural celebration uh, just like uh, Valentine's Day, which is not in the Bible. Amen? That was a joke. Relax. If these things aren't true, then listen, Christmas is nothing more than a Hallmark holiday. And so who is this king of glory? He's God in the flesh. He's supreme in nature. He's eternal in nature as well. And so the whole question, is Christmas true, hangs on those truths. And so uh, here's what the Bible says, it is true. But it begs a follow-up question, which is this. Why was that first Christmas necessary? Why do we need this to be a true story? Why, why can't we just celebrate and 
Given the traditions and the cultural thing, and whether it's true or not doesn't matter because everybody, you know, celebrates Christmas. And let's just get, you know, why, why, do, why, was it, why is it necessary that it's true, not just sentimental? Well, you don't have to wonder what the purpose of the incarnation was because it's stated yet again. Go back and look at verse 19 and verse 20. And so verse 19 says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's his nature, God in the flesh. Look at verse 20. Here's why. Here's why Christmas has to be true. Here's why. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That word, verse 20, in reconcile is a huge word theologically. That word reconcile means to exchange hostility uh, for friendship. And so what that means is despite the t-shirts, nobody starts off as Jesus' homeboy. That according to the text, that I start off uh, in a a relationship with Jesus that's one of hostility, right? It's what the text says, uh, to reconcile, to exchange hostility for friendship. And until I receive Christ, that's a position I stay in, is a position of hostility, I've had people tell me over the years, like, I'm not the most religious person, but I'm totally cool with God, uh, not according to the Bible. The Bible says that I'm in a position of hostility, and I need reconciliation, because reconciliation exchanges hostility for friendship. And so when he describes this, he says that, that there needs to be a reconciliation, a change of relationship that has to be, uh, take place. And so what Jesus is offering uh, is peace with God. You say, what, what does that mean? That means apart from Jesus, uh, what, whether it's active or not, that, listen, here's what I want you to understand. If you're not receiving Jesus, you are, well, whether you understand this is active or not, if you're not receiving Jesus, then you're openly rejecting him. And so when he describes a position of uh, hostility, uh, we say, hey, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm good with God. Uh, what, is, what the Bible says is th- that's not true. That's not true. That's why there needs reconciliation. That's why hostility can be exchanged for uh, friendship. You say, well, how does that happen? By the blood of his cross, verse 20. Listen to Romans 5, 8, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. I'm just going to walk this a little slow. I've still got 40 minutes left. We're we're good. But God demonstrates his own love toward us uh, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In in that while we were actively waging war against Jesus Christ, uh, Christ died for us. Not, not when you got your life cleaned up, not when you thought like, when? When I was actively sinning against him, that's when Christ died for us. Much more than that, having now been justified uh, by his blood, uh, we shall be saved. Uh, and I want, you to, I want you to zero in on this. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, meaning Jesus. Now, let me just uh, pause here for a moment. Remember years ago, uh, when that book, Purpose Driven Life, came out, and there, listen, there's a lot of good things in that book. I don't agree with all, there's a lot of good things in there. But, but one of the unintended consequences, because that became the best-selling nonfiction book uh, in American history. I don't know if that still, record still stands, but for a while it was. And, and one of the unintended consequences of that book 
was that there's almost this idea that the reason Jesus came is that because we were living lives without purpose, and if we could find Jesus, we could find purpose in our life. So Jesus saves us uh, from a life that lacks purpose. Now, that is true in an overflow sense, but that's not the reason Jesus came. I don't know if I've told you this or not, I think I have over the years. Uh, before I was a pastor, uh, I was a corrections officer. By the way, some of you look familiar. I can't put your face together, right? I think I could put a name to a face if you would just do this. And, and so one of the things, I worked as a correction officer in a juvenile detention facility. And one of the things that would happen is uh, I was a part-time youth pastor at that point, And they, they knew that and said, so call me preach. And so I would, always just, I would just always try to treat kids with respect because here's the reality. I'm just... Listen, we're all sinners, but some of those kids came from a background where, like, it, the, the grain was stacked, the cards were stacked against them. Like, their parents would come for visitation, and within about 30 seconds, uh, we would all talk, and be like, oh, this makes sense now, right? So I just was kind to them, share with them, and so what happened, they, they would come out for court. And what happened, when they would come out for court, uh, they'd come out to the pod, that's what we call it, the pod, and I was out there, and I said, hey, uh, you know the drill, and so they would turn around, and uh, we had a rubber couch, and so they'd get on the couch, and they'd have to get on the couch on their knees facing away from me. And then I would take out cuffs, and I would cuff their hands behind their back, and then on occasion, uh, we would cuff their, uh, their ankles uh, together, sometimes we didn't have to, but sometimes like, hey, this, uh, this, this, got, this kid got a little squirrely, and so we'd cuff them together. And I don't, I don't care who you are. You're 14 years old and you hear that noise, the cuffs, cuffs clicking. You're not as tough as you thought you were. And I would just ask them, I say, hey, are you, are you scared today? He's going to court and they don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes they, they wouldn't even answer, they just start crying. But other times they would say this, I'm good, I've been reading my Bible and pray and preach. I know, I know if God's for me, court's going to go well today. Can I just tell you this, that jailhouse religion is real? Why am I saying that? What's it got to do with anything? Because Jesus didn't come to save you from a life that lacked purpose. Jesus didn't come to save you from the consequences of your unwise and sinful actions. The Bible says in Romans 5 that Jesus came to save you from the wrath of God that's poured out on all those who openly reject his son, Jesus God is holy and just and righteous in all of his judgments. And listen, if the Bible's true, that Jesus is God, verse 15, that he's supreme over all creation, verse 16, and he's eternal in nature, verse 16 and 17, 18, that is the just response of a just God. That people would look at the Christ of Christmas and say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't believe any of it. I'll celebrate all of it. I don't believe any of it. I'm good without Jesus. And the Bible says that, that, that but God saves us from the wrath of God. This verse goes on and says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved from his life. And so the Christ of Christmas really was God incarnate. That God really was with us in the manger and is still available to us through the person and work of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That he's God, that he's supreme, that he's eternal, that he's Lord over all creation. There's no question that's what the Bible teaches. The only question is this, is he Lord of your 
life? And if the answer is no, or I'm not sure, then I can't think of a better time than right now to receive the gift of the Christ of Christmas in the manger, God with us, Emmanuel. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you the simplest question I can think of, but at the same time, it's the most important question anyone's ever asked you. You know Jesus? Is Christmas something you celebrate because it's cultural? Or because you really believe that God came down took on flesh for the sins of the world including yours you see the first Christmas was just a catalyst in events that ultimately culminated in the cross of Calvary but that baby that was born in the manger lived a sinless life died on the cross for our sins was buried and God raised him from the dead Because God put his stamp of approval on him. And so the question this morning is this. Is the Christ of Christmas, the eternal supreme God, is he your Lord and Savior? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then right now, right in your seat, you can pray and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that or you're not sure you've done that, would you, if this is where your heart's at today, then by faith, would you confess that you're a sinner? Compared to the life of Jesus, you're sinful and fell short. Would you agree that your sin has separated you from a holy God? And that today by faith, you believe that Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins. He was buried and rose the third day. And by faith, would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you make today the Christ of Christmas your personal Lord and Savior? Would you pray and receive Jesus right now this Christmas? Father, we come not just declaring theological truths about Jesus and his nature. Well, Lord, we recognize that truth makes a moral claim on our lives. And so, Lord, it's my pleading prayer today that not a person would leave here today without receiving Jesus. Jesus is the whole point of Christmas. God was with us in the manger. And so God, don't let anyone leave here without Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us who've been walking with Christ, let's pray very simply that the message of Christmas is on our lips throughout the whole year. Christmas is not just a holiday. 
It's the story of Emmanuel. And so use us, Lord, to share that message around the world and across the street. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.